Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decrees. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead you to destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We had another taste of royalty just recently. I'm sure you might have caught this in the news. Uh, hand, hand up if you watched any or part of the wedding. Oh, good Lord. Seriously. Okay. Uh, th- this man is fifth in line to the throne. Like, it's not even proper royalty. But, but, but we're captivated by this, aren't we? It's quite amazing how much... Even, even though we have a very strong Republican movement in this country, uh, a Republican movement led by this man who still gets a little weak in the knees when he meets the Queen as well, um, we love royalty. We love the idea that there is someone that is in that position, someone who holds that place. Now, the Queen may only be, in many ways, a ceremonial function, uh, not having any real great power, and the kings and queens in the few countries that we have today in some ways are, are a bit of a relic of the past, a little bit of history still involved in those countries and, and, and almost maintained for the tourist attraction value that they have. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at kingship in the pages of the Old Testament and we need to be careful that we don't confuse that kingship with the type of king that God was expecting over his people. The king in Israel was to be a completely different king to all of the kings of the world. No matter what they were like, the king who ruled God's people was to be different, as we'll see. Now, the role of the king in Israel was vital to the future of the nation. The whole future of God's people was going to depend on what kind of king they had. And as we read on and see the story of the Old Testament unfold, we realise their kings were very often failures and because of that, the nation failed. The king was central to God's plan and God's purpose. And this morning we're going to be focusing on King David and the role that he played. But before we jump in there, we need to remember where we're up to in the story. There's been a a big movement that's taken place. Last week, we looked at the story of Abraham, and there is an an enormous amount that is covered between Abraham and King David coming on the scene. 
Uh, we saw that uh, Abraham had been called by God and God had made a series of promises to Abraham, three promises in particular, that they would be God's people, Abraham's descendants would be God's people, that he would give them a land, a place in which they could live and, and, he's, and that, they would, that God would rule over them and bless them. And he even said to Abraham, you will be blessed by me and through you the whole world will be blessed. Now, as I said, when we looked at Genesis 12 last week, the promises that God made to Abraham, that's the big turning point in the story of the Bible. In in some ways, Genesis 1 to 11 is world history, telling us what's taking place in the entire world. But at the beginning of chapter 12, the focus of the Bible from that point on to the very end of the Bible, to Revelation chapter 22, the focus now changes to one man, Abraham, and his descendants, and how it is that the world will be blessed through the promises that God has made to Abraham. In in Genesis 1 to 11, we saw a world that continually rejects God, but in Genesis 12, and right through to the end of Revelation, we see God's plan to fix what's wrong with the world. The promises that God made to Abraham are the promises that will drive the history of Israel, that will drive the story of the Bible and their promises that will culminate in the coming of God's Son. But by the time that Abraham died, he'd seen very little of the promises fulfilled. He had one son, hardly what you'd call the numerous descendants that God had promised, and the only part of the land of Canaan that he owned at the time that he died was the small patch that he'd bought as a burial plot his wife and also would be the place where he himself would be buried. But Abraham knew that God would fulfill his promises. He had complete certainty that it would happen. He was so convinced that God would be faithful to the promises that he had made. It wasn't wishful thinking, it was confidence in a God who'd proven faithful every step of the way in Abraham's life. Even when Abraham proved to be unfaithful, God continued to be faithful to Abraham. Abraham had one son, Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. But it's Jacob who inherits the promises. Jacob has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel, where the nation of Israel will come from. When you get to the end of the book of Genesis, Abraham's descendants now number around about 70 people living still in that foreign land of Egypt. I mean, they're well short of the grains of sand on the seashore that God had promised, but they are growing. Well, Genesis closes with them still living in Egypt, not even living in the land that God had promised. The the small patch that Abraham had bought as the burial plot has been left behind and the family are now living in Egypt. But let me show you the confidence that they have that God will fulfill his promises. When you get to the very closing chapter of Genesis, Joseph, one of Jacob's 12 sons, one of the leaders of Israel, they're still living in Egypt, but he is so convinced that God will fulfill the promises that one day they'll go from Egypt back to the land that God has promised them. This is what he said. I think this is one of the more kind of touching passages in the pages of the scripture. It says this, Then Joseph said to his brothers, he's on his deathbed, 
I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land that he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up from this place. Joseph was resigned to the fact that he was going to die there, but he was committed to the fact that God would fulfill the promises and he wanted to be buried in the land that God was going to give them. So he makes them promise that they will take his bones. Now, Between the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible, there's a little bit of a time gap. Well, in fact, there's 450 years of a time gap. Uh, You you don't kind of notice that when you turn from one page to the next, but that's the length of time between the two books. Abraham's descendants are still living in Egypt, 450 years on, but their numbers have grown. It's no longer 70 people living in Egypt, We're told that there are more than 600,000 men. So presumably more than one and a half million of them now living down there in Egypt. And the new Pharaoh knows nothing of Joseph or the promises that God has made. The new Pharaoh subjects them to suffering and hardship. But God keeps his promises. Abraham's descendants have become numerous and under the leadership of Moses, they leave the captivity of Egypt and they move towards the promised land. And every step of the way, God is with them, blessing them, providing for them, being faithful to the promises that he's made to them. We have the story of God parting the Red Sea, guiding them through the wilderness, some great Sunday Sunday school stories that we can all remember in here. A friend of mine was doing a talk at a Sunday school anniversary and she got all of the children out the front and was asking them what they'd been learning and the kids were saying they'd been learning about Moses leading the people through the wilderness and how God provided for them. And she said, well, what did they find all over the ground when they went out in the evening? And one of the kids enthusiastically put up their hand and said, quail, they found quail to eat uh, out on the ground. And she said, well, when they went out in the morning, they went out and, and the ground was covered with white. What was that? What did they have out there? Another boy put his hand up enthusiastically wanting to answer. Quail poo was the answer. <laughs> no manner was the answer. But the promises are being fulfilled. God has led his people out of Egypt up to the very edge of the promised land. They're about to enter into the land that God has promised them. We have the book of Joshua and Judges that we've been looking at in the Bible study groups over these last couple of uh, uh, weeks, entering and taking possession of the land. But now that the people are in the land, they're going to need a king to lead them. They're going to need someone to rule over this nation. God's very happy for them to have a king, so long as it's the right king. One of the things that God is adamant about is that they are not to copy the nations around them. They're not to look for a king just like all of the other nations have. The kingship in Israel was to be different. And this is what God said in Deuteronomy when they're standing on the edge of the promised land, just about to enter into the land. He talks to them uh, through Moses about the kind of king that they have. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself, on a scroll, a copy of the law taken from that of the priests who are Levites. 
It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of his law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his brothers and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. The king was to be the one who led God's people, who set an example for God's people. He's not to think of himself as being more important than anyone else. He is one of the people of Israel. Yes, he has a significant role, a role in which God has placed him, but he's not to be like the kings of the other nations. He's not a law unto himself. He's not to surround himself with wealth. God's people are to have a king who is marked by godliness, by a willingness to obey what God's word says. And without a doubt, the most famous king that Israel had was King David. He's the king that all of the other kings had to live up to. He's the king who's summed up in the Bibles as being the one who has a heart that's fully devoted to God. Now, we know of David's great failures, but in some ways, this is the golden age of Israel when King David is on the throne. It's under David that they finally took possession of all of the land that God had promised them. It's under David that Israel began to prosper as a nation. And when you look at David's kingship, it kind of looks like the promises that God has made have now been fulfilled. God promised them people, well, they're now a large nation, millions of people. God promised them a place in which they would live. They've now completely taken possession of the land that God was giving them. And God promised them blessing, that he would rule over them and he would bless them. And they're enjoying God's blessing, living in peace and security in the land that God has given them. It's taken about a thousand years to get to that point. It's quite staggering, isn't it? A thousand years from when those promises were made to Abraham to when King David can stand on his balcony and say, we're here, we've arrived. But every step of the way, it's God who has been faithful to them. You read those stories between Abraham and David and it's just stories of repeated unfaithfulness on the part of his people, but God remains faithful to the promises and sees them fulfilled. But the kingship that we see in Israel is really only a shadow of what God ultimately has in store, isn't it? God's ultimate plan is to have his people led by his king, a king that's even greater than King David. When I was growing up, I had uh, airfix models. I some of you may have done the same thing. They're still around today. Uh, this was the one that I had. It was a Messerschmitt 109. Uh, fantastic getting these little pieces of plastic and gluing them all together and painting them all and putting the stickers on. And in the end, you have a realistic model of what that plane would have looked like. I mean, they're accurate down to the finest detail, these things. A friend of mine had the B-52 bomber, which was a massive Thing. A, a really, it was kind of the biggest airfix model that they had, a big plane. 
And when he was young and, and had this model, his dad took him out to an air show where there was going to be a real B-52 bomber. He thought it would be a good idea to take his small B-52 bomber out there just so that he could identify the real one when he got there. But when he got there, he said he actually felt quite embarrassed carrying around this piddly little plane when there's this massive B-52 bomber sitting out there on the runway. See, as impressive as King David may have been, he's really just a small-scale model of the real king that was to come. David was just a shadow of the king that God would put onto his throne. You reach the pages of the New Testament and Jesus keeps being described as the son of David, the one who is in David's line, the descendant of David, because he's clearly the one who has come to take the throne. Jesus is the king who will reign over God's people. When you think about it, there's pretty strong parallels between the life of King David and the life of Jesus. David went from being a shepherd boy to being the king of Israel. He was even an unlikely choice, even from within his own family. Well, Jesus went from being a carpenter's son in Nazareth to being the king of God's people. And even his own family doubted the choice. Both of them faced insurmountable enemies. David comes onto the scene to defeat Goliath, the leader of the Philistines, the enemy that was mocking God's people, Israel. Well, Jesus was able to defeat sin and death, the enemy that had mocked mankind since the time of Adam and Eve. Did you listen to that Bible reading earlier, Psalm 2? Here's a psalm that was written around about King David's time about the king in Israel and God being the one who puts the king on the throne and God being the one who ultimately rules over his people. I suppose in some ways the psalm could have applied to probably most of the kings of Israel. But it seems to be pointing to a greater king, doesn't it? It seems to be pointing to the one who is God's son. It seems to be pointing clearly to the kingship that Jesus is going to exercise. It looks like a shadow of the reality that is to come in Jesus. It's no surprise that Jesus is called the son of David in the New Testament because David was just the shadow. Jesus is the reality. Jesus is the king. New Testament writers knew that Jesus was the king and they knew that David was just foreshadowing what it was that Jesus would do. And Jesus came not just to be the king of Israel, he's come to be the king of this world, the king who rules over all. Jesus has come to be the king of the whole world. In Philippians, this is what Paul says about King Jesus. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the kingship that Jesus exercises. Not kingship over a tiny little nation on the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. Kingship where every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow and acknowledge that Jesus is king. God's plan is that every knee will bow to his son. 
Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But more than that, Jesus is not just the king that we trust. He's the example that we follow. Listen to what Paul says just before those verses, at the beginning of this section. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be taken advantage of, sorry, with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Jesus is a remarkable king. He's the king who came to save us, not just from death, through his death on the cross, but he's the king who came to serve. He's the king who came to lead God's people, but he's the king who's humbled himself. He's the king who lives and reigns in heaven, and he's still the one that we're to follow. So how do you respond to Jesus as king? Well, the very first thing you need to do is you need to make sure that you've bowed your knee to him as king. You need to make sure that Jesus is your king. You need to make sure that you have placed your trust in him. And if Jesus is your king, then you seek to be like him. You seek to have his attitude. What attitude do we see Jesus show? Well, he made himself nothing. He takes the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself. He became obedient even to death on a cross. That's the attitude that we're to have. Jesus is the king that we are to bow our knee to, not just once, but every day. The king that we are to profess with our tongue is the king that we are to talk about. And he's the king who is the example for our lives. We should want our attitude to be the same as his attitude. And we should want that every day. You should want that when you leave here this morning to remember that Jesus is your king and your attitude should be the same as his attitude. When you wake up tomorrow morning, you should remember that Jesus is your king and you should want his attitude to be your attitude. Jesus reigns and he reigns over every area of our life and has shown us the example that we are to follow.